Well, it's great to see you guys. Lovely to be able to spend every Tuesday night together. Um, tonight is very unique. You know me. And we are always wanting to talk about the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of Jesus and how he works into our lives with love. And this is what we're interested in. It's highest priority of all. Uh, tonight is not going to be so much of a fun subject as a necessary subject. I know many of you have been through certain things this last year with regard to what we're going to talk about tonight. And for me personally, I feel almost selfish having Doc on to talk about these things because I don't understand this stuff and I never had to deal with it before until it came to my doorstep and uh, the pain that it caused me, my family and other families that I know, I just need answers. And the Lord has granted us wonderful grace in Dr. Brown to be able to share with us tonight um, on all these things. If you printed out your sheet, I did it like this because I felt like it'd be easy to follow along. Maybe you have your phone or something and he's going to go through question by question and you can just kind of throw in whatever notes you have for his answers on each one of these. And then when he's finished, if he finishes through these, um, we'll open it up for live questions from you guys, uh, kind of keeping it, keeping it in, in line with this. So let us pray and then we will turn Dr. Brown loose. What do you say? Praise God. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who loved us and freed us from our sins. Praise God. Thank you for him. He's made us a kingdom priest unto his God and fought. Thank you for this Christ, the faithful witness. Oh, we worship him. We glorify him. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Praise God. We worship you, Jesus. There is not another like you. We are so in need of you again tonight, even as the first day, we need you. We need you, Lord. We need you. We need you because we can't see without you. We need you because we can't understand without you. We need you because you are life for us. We are dead without you. And Lord, even tonight, what I'm asking is that you would give to us wisdom. Lord, that you'd bring us out of being naive and bring us into wisdom knowing that naivety is a way of being led away. So Lord, bring us into an understanding, a knowledge of you and your character and your nature that we might be able to see what is contrary to you and respond like you would to things that are contrary to you. We praise you. We worship you. Lord, anoint Doc tonight. Let oil just drip off his tongue. Give him wisdom and articulation to dismantle the lies of the enemy and to bring light to our understanding of what the kingdom of God actually is with Christ as its great King. In your precious name, we worship you. Amen. Amen. Doc, I'll just hand it to you. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's great to be with all of you. Great to see so many of you on the screen here. Um, my schedule has gotten increasingly in intense and there are many, many, podcasts now that people do. So we get a constant flood of requests to do things like this and have to turn down many of them. The moment I saw a request from Eric, I said, of course, of course, we'll do it. What, what a joy. Uh, one of our, our precious grads and, and carrying this, uh, the sacred things that have been entrusted to him many years ago. So it's, it's a real joy to spend this time together. And the list of questions we have is actually 18 questions long. 
and some of them we could we could take hours on. But what I want to do is give you some general principles, uh, lay out some parameters, and then get through the questions as quickly as I can, in depth, but as quickly as I can, to leave time within the hour for you to raise uh, some further questions so we can interact a little bit more personally on this. But I, I find the questions very important, but very odd personally, meaning it's so foreign to me to think of a leader trying to get something out of people or a leader not having the attitude of a servant that, that our whole burden as leaders is, is how can we glorify the Lord and serve others, not how can we use others for our purposes. And I've always pointed to John chapter 13, where Jesus, knowing that he is, was going to leave this world, that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, and that all authority had been given to him, what does he do? Does he raise his hands and say, all of you worship me, which of course would have been appropriate because he's the son of God. No, he, he takes off his out, outer garments and washes the disciples' feet. He does lowly servant's work. He was so conscious of who he was that he had that deep security. And because of that, he could wash their feet and then ultimately die a criminal's death because of his security in God, his security as God in the flesh. And what I've often seen with abusive leaders is that they're insecure people, that they're people that need to be recognized or need to assert their power or need to say, I'm the head honcho on this wrong branch. And all the decades that I've been in leadership, so leading schools, teaching at schools, leading ministries, being looked to as a leader, a father, I can't remember ever having to say, I'm, the, I'm so, you need to listen to me. I, I might appeal and say, listen, I, I'm speaking to you as a father. I, I might appeal and say, look, I, I've been in this for decades. I've been in this over a half century. Please hear what I have to say. In other words, there's weight to my words, but I've never had to assert my authority in some way like a, a father screaming at his wife because I'm, I'm the boss, here. I'm the boss here. There's something terribly insecure about that, something terribly wrong about that, because when you're really called by God, you know his anointing on your life, you know the authority that he's given you, and, and you know that by serving and setting an example that people will follow naturally. Uh, in my book, Playing with Holy Fire, which came out in 2018, there's a whole chapter on abusive leaders. And I'm going to start there and then, and then go through the questions. But at the end of the chapter on abusive leadership, where I get into a lot of, of depth on it, it's a whole chapter, I, I say, how can you determine if you're sitting under abusive leaders? You can use this as a simple checklist. One, do they put you under pressure, even with embarrassment or threats, if you don't unquestioningly follow their lead? Or worst of all, if you contemplate leaving? Two. Are they getting rich off your giving, especially sacrificial giving? Three, are they lording it over you rather than leading by example? Four, do they constantly speak about their special gifting and calling and anointing and authority? Five, do they tell you how privileged you are to have someone like them at the helm? Six, are they lone rangers lacking in all accountability? Seven, are they harsh, mean-spirited, 
short-tempered and insulting to any whose allegiance they question. If you answered yes to any of these questions, you might want to pray about moving elsewhere. If you'd answered yes to two of these questions, you should strongly consider leaving. If you'd answered yes to three of these questions, I'd seriously urge you to make a change before you and your family get seriously hurt. If you answered yes to all of them, by all means, run for your life. And I said, this applies to you all the more if you're not a rebel at heart, meaning that you love godly authority and want to be a committed part of a local congregation, that you're willing to serve and submit. If that's the attitude of your heart, you need not fear the threats coming your way. Just quietly move on and submit to a shepherd who is there to strengthen the flock. All right, so that answers in part the first question, how to know when one is under controlling, manipulative, spiritual, abusive leadership. This person is seeking to control you. This person is taking away your own autonomy in the Lord. This person is looking at you as someone that can help them do their work. In other words, you are a tool to them as opposed to either a coworker, a colleague, a friend, or a congregant whom they are there to serve. And in terms of what kind of effects this leadership has on the people, well, it's now fear-based that you're, you're always looking over your shoulder for what, you're, what you've done wrong. It, is, it takes away joy. It takes away a sense of creativity and faith because you're under someone else's thumb. I mean, think of it like this. If you're an abusive husband and you're always yelling at your wife's cooking and complaining, it's not good enough, it's not this, it's not that, Instead of her having a creative flair, like, oh, let me try to cook up something new tonight, or, or having a certain confidence, she, all she's going to be thinking is, I have to stay within these parameters, or he's going to get mad at me again. So manipulative leadership may not be that openly manipulative. It may not be that clear in terms of being wrong. But ultimately, it's, its spirit has that same kind of effect. Your own vision becomes subdued or quenched, your ability to, to really question and think clearly, it's taken away because you don't want to be a rebel. You don't want to cross that line. Uh, you, you walk in this, in this fear-based mentality. And rather than your big ambition being to please God and to, and to bring joy to the Lord and honor to him, your big ambition is not to get your leader upset or to, to get commendation from your leader. Uh, how are people to respond to manipulative, controlling, spiritually abusive leadership? Well, you need to do your best first to recognize it. And like I said, if you're not a rebel at heart, if you have a history of serving, if you have a history of honoring authority, if you have a, a history of, of, of wanting to, to be part and you're not independent, unaccountable yourself, well, it becomes even easier to recognize abusive leadership. I once had a situation where a person said to me that they'd seen rebellion in me. I said, you've known me for years. Have you ever seen it before? They said, no, but I'm seeing it now because I couldn't agree with them on a point. I thought, that's not who I am. I've never been that. I'm not a rebel. I've got, I'm far from perfect, but I'm not a rebel. So if, if you know, we, we've always loved to serve. We've thrown ourselves in. You know, my spouse and I, we've always thrown ourselves in and, and, and we don't want our names known. We're just, we're happy to promote someone else. And yet 
you are being told there's something wrong in your spirit or this pride, I'm detecting pride or, you know, th this stuff that now gets you super introspective and, and paralyzes you in different ways. So you, you recognize that this is going on. And first thing you have to do is step back, step back because you could get trapped for years and, and you get so trapped that you're afraid to, to step away. And when someone wants to talk to you about, hey, look, I see some real problems here. You're afraid because you don't want to be guilty of gossip and things like that. You, you don't want to question the man or the woman of God. So it's, it's important that you step back, that you pull your heart back. It doesn't belong to that leader. It belongs to the Lord. You pull your heart back. And then you say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? If you're in a relationship where you have some degree of authority in the ministry or some degree of respect, then you can graciously try to reach out to this abusive leader and, and reason with them. Uh, otherwise, you pray for them as the Lord directs. And if you see this is a, a dominant destructive situation, you get out of there. You say, but it's my livelihood. You get out of there. You prayerfully find a, another way to make a living uh, because it's, it's not worth destroying your life over this. And ultimately, you become a servant of a person more than a servant of God. Uh, number four, uh, the term gaslighting, and number five and six, how to know if you're being gaslit and how should you respond? Yes, yeah, so gaslighting is, I'm going to make you question your own sanity. I'm going to make you question what you, you know. I, I'm going to respond to you in such a way that brings all kinds of self-doubt you know, maybe you've studied a subject for years and you come to me with a difference. I'm, I'm going to respond to you in such a way that makes you question whether you really know anything. Uh, again, that, that's another type of manipulative or abusive leadership. So how do you recognize it? You recognize it again if, number one, this is, this is not part of your history. This is a different experience. In other words, you interact with people all the time. You debate and dialogue and have issues and differences all the time. But this feels different. This feels different because you're now being made to question yourself. You're now being put in a situation where, where you wonder, do I even know this? Do I really know the Lord? Have I ever really heard his voice? There's something very condescending about it and manipulative about it, even if it's not overt. But if you find yourself questioning yourself in a way you never have, and it's becoming unhealthy in your overall spiritual life, and if it's primarily when you're around this one person or interacting with this one person, and it seems that it's not just having a difference, but it's a difference with a superiority that they're bringing, which, which you can't even respond to intellectually or emotionally, because, hey, you just have to question everything. That, once again, is something you need to step back from and clear your head and say, no, I, I, I do know this. I, I, I do have understanding. You know, during the, the last elections, the 2020 elections, my, my wife, Nancy, who had uh, absolutely did not want to see Joe Biden in the White House, did not want to see a, a Democrat ruled government, uh, she had voted for Trump with great reservations in 2016, but told me she couldn't vote for him again in 2020. She felt that his character and who he was was having such a destructive effect on the church that it was doing even more damage than 
a, a radical left agenda. So uh, she just said, I, I, I can't cast a vote for, for president. I don't want to see Joe Biden in, and I can't vote for Donald Trump. But she became overwhelmed with a burden, basically predicted everything that happened to me short of the January 6th events. And for, for uh, probably several months, spent much of the day weeping in prayer with this terrible burden that she was carrying. The problem was there was this chorus of prophets, basically every major prophetic voice that was out there saying Trump will be reelected and he will serve eight consecutive years. Not a future reelection, not 2024, but that he will be reelected and, and serve eight consecutive years. And, and she came to me and saying, what about my relationship with God? It, in other words, the, all the prophets are saying this, and you make, it makes you question your sanity. Now, regardless of how you voted or if you agree with her perspective or not, that's not the issue. The fact is the prophets were wrong. It, it did not happen. There were not eight consecutive years in the White House. And regardless of whether you think the election was stolen or not, that's not relevant. The issue is what they said would happen and how it would happen did not happen. And then many kept prophesying after the results came in, they're going to be overturned, watch and see what's going to happen. Well, what, what was hurting her was... Look, she's a very, very strong person. She's the strongest person that I know, actually. And she has a very, very solid relationship with God. And she's married to me. And so I'm, I'm a senior leader in the body. And yet she felt overwhelmed. And I, I don't mean these prophetic brothers and sisters were gaslighting. I don't mean that at all. But she felt overwhelmed with, okay, I'm just one person. I'm not a prophet. I'm just one person. And in, in my heart, I'm convicted of this. But, you know, you feel like you're crazy because all the prophets are saying this. So that kind of uh, situation is very unhealthy when you're in a, a church setting where you know something in your heart is right or wrong. But now you're made to question yourself. That's when you step back and get clarity before the Lord and realize, OK, this type of leadership is toxic. And I'm going to have to separate myself from it. If you're married to it, if your spouse does it to you then you really need wisdom as to how to shield yourself because it's, it's very destructive to our, to our own psyche. Uh, for leader uses spiritual threats, your anointing will be removed from you or word curses, your children become sick, twisting the scriptures in order to secure your allegiance to them. Is that witchcraft? Yeah, in terms of a destructive, manipulative, spiritual force, you could call it witchcraft. The word can be defined differently, but that's the kind of situation you run from. I take those words and I turn them around into prophecies because virtually every day people malign me, slander me uh, on internet, social media, different things, write false articles about me, put false videos about me. We get death wishes and things like that. So when those come my way, I turn them around as prophecies. All the ones that say I'm going to die of this and that, I turn around and thank God for extended health. All the ones that tell me this is going to collapse and that's going to collapse in my ministry. I turn around and thank God for, for double blessing coming. And then sometimes if something gets in your spirit, gets in your mind, and you're tormented by it, and you're, you're hurt by it, and, and it's like dragging on you, yeah, you are going to get sick, or this is going to happen. That's when you really need to speak it out before the Lord, renounce it, denounce it, and then quote Isaiah 54, 17, that no weapon formed against me will succeed. Every time that rises against me in judgment, I'll pronounce guilty. This is my heritage, a servant of the Lord, and my vindication comes from you, Lord. Or in Proverbs 26, that 
that the curse without cause will not come to light. Or another way to read the Hebrew, it'll come back to the person who spoke it. So that stuff can get on you and it can be very oppressive. And, you know, when it's the moment, one of your kids gets sick, it's like, see, see, that's it. They're going to die. So if, if those things stick in you and they can sometimes, uh, we've had it over the decades where something, something like an intercessor speaks something they're not supposed to speak. They're just supposed to pray and they speak it instead. They're supposed to pray some attack off of you. Instead, they tell you this terrible thing is going to come and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you've got to really wrestle that thing down before the Lord and, and render those words powerless. But yeah, no godly leader who loves Jesus and is there to serve is going to threaten you. And if there's a real warning, it would be from someone who is not manipulative, who has never tried to use you or take advantage of you, who has never tried to lord it over you, and they come to you with tears and brokenness and plead with you to hear them because danger is ahead. That's very different from spiritual manipulation. Uh, is it wrong to mistreat people under the batter of NDAs and confidentiality? non-intellectual property, personal information, or private logs and accounts, rather something fundamentally wrong, but stopping them from speaking out about any of the wrongs you do to them? Yeah, of, of course it is. Look, again, I, I'm not a novice here. I've been saved over 51 years, been preaching going on 50 years this August. It's never dawned on me once. I'm a public figure. It's never dawned on me once to have any type of NDA or any type of confidentiality agreement or anything like that. All the leaders that I've worked with over the decades, all the ministry that I've done around the world, the ministries I've raised up, it's, it's never dawned on me. I, I, can't, I can't even imagine a scenario that would dawn on me. So when, when people are operating like this, especially if they don't have some, some massive ministry, you know, it's, reaching 3 billion people and $200 million a year budget with every kind of lawyer in, in the world, you know, trying to take them down, you know, try to hurt them. You know, maybe there might be something where because of all the legal attacks that could do something, but I, I mean, even there, I can't imagine it. We live right. We honor the Lord. What do we have to worry about? So I, I, I could, I could not imagine that or, or imagine to forcing someone to sign under that or, you know, what you learn here in ministry, you can't speak with that, or what you see. If, if our example is an above reproach, what are we doing in ministry? Uh, I'm not familiar with the term double separation, but this is when you tell people to disassociate with a brother you have disassociated with. Um, if someone is part of your church fellowship, right? You got a church of 400 people. There's a, a brother was a worship leader, and now he has left his wife without justification. He's living with another woman in adultery, and he's, he's continuing to come to the church and saying that the Lord is still with him. Uh, well, you, you privately call that person to repentance. You give them every opportunity to repent and get right with God and their family. If they refuse, then you disfellowship them you excommunicate them according to 1 Corinthians 5. So let's say that that was your cousin and you were part of that church and you were still having your cousin over to do worship services in your home. Well, it would be right 
for someone to go to you and say, hey, we've disfellowshipped this person. You're part of our church. We've disfellowshipped them to help them come to repentance and, and to protect their, their true wife and family and to protect the name of the Lord. And what you're doing is harmful. Well, that, that's legitimate. In other words, you're, you did this together as a congregation. This person is a member of your congregation. And, and they're flaunting what's being said. However, the idea that just in general, because I mark someone, you have to mark them. Because I have an issue with them, you have to have an issue with them. Because I won't fellowship with them, you can't fellowship with them. That's, that's something very, very different. Uh, I, I'm in the midst of a situation now with a pastor I've had great respect for for many years, ministered for him a good number of times, a church of about 6,000 people, influential church in their city. And he, he moved on to uh, a status where he was doing it more outside ministry and only at the home base occasionally. For whatever reason, there's been a falling out. And because of that, um, he's very, very upset with the church. And, and people have even told him that he needs to take them to court or some kind of binding arbitration with Christians because the way he's been treated and the church feels he's wrong. So I, I've remained close with him. I got an invitation from the church to speak, and I, I had to decline because I don't know the right and wrong of the situation, and it's very messy, but I, I asked for an opportunity to speak with the new pastor, uh, and, and I just said, listen, it's not even to take sides. He remains a good friend, and it's a very messy situation, and for me to speak for you now would be dishonoring, so I I want to see this resolved. I want to see it reconciled. I really want to come back and speak. I would really enjoy doing that. But can you understand it's a difficult situation now? He thanked me. It meant the world to him that I would take the time to call him. And I said, listen, I've heard his side. I want to hear your side. Not just because I'm trying to be the mediator, but just to be fair. So I'm not cutting anybody off. And no one's asked me to cut anyone off. But if, if you do look, I have an issue with this person. Well, okay, I want to hear why. but let me get involved myself and see what's going on. It's very, it's a very different situation than a church rightfully excommunicating someone and you being asked to, uh, to be part of that. Um, how can we help restore those people that have been hurt? There, there is a church movement that years ago seemed to be one of the most solid, healthy movements that I knew of. I'm going back. Oh, let's see almost 40 years now, as, as it was growing, 35 years, it was growing and becoming more prominent. It seemed to really be marked by integrity at the highest level. The, the challenge was that it, it was known to be very narrow. And for you to be a leader in their midst, you really had to kind of go through their inner circle and over a period of years and race up a certain way. And, and then they would detect pride in you. This began to surface. You'd be a senior pastor, and other leaders would detect pride in you. How can you argue that? I'm not proud. I'm not proud. Oh, yes, yeah, see, you sound proud, brother. And they ended up removing dozens of their senior leaders. And literally, in some cases, they went from senior pastor to custodian, to cleaning the toilets, to, to prove their humility. And to my knowledge, over the years, not one of them ever got restored. In other words, they got so hurt by this abusive leadership. And it, it, it all got exposed over the years. But they got so hurt by this that, that they never found their way back to who they were. Their, their personal confidence was that shattered, which is really, really a shame to hear. 
So when, when people have been hurt by abusive leadership, we can't just try to put them back into a position of leadership authority themselves, because that's not the issue. The issue is they've been wounded in their hearts. They, they have gone from being confident in their relationship with God or confident in their calling to feeling like something's wrong with them, like they're subpar, that they don't fit. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be sometimes in a rich part of a city. You could just smell it. And everywhere you go, the people carry themselves a certain way. And if, if I, you know, go to just stop and do business there or something, I've got to buy something, I've got to put gas in my car. I'm always thinking I'm going to do it wrong because uh, I'm not one of these, you know, super rich people that knows like I'm going to do something or I'm going to show up at the event and I'm not dressed properly. You know, you always got to feel like uh, doing something wrong. Well, on a very deep level, this can happen to people who've been spiritually abused that, that you, you just kind of walk like, like a, a dog that's done something wrong with your head hung down. So it's, it's really important to do serious ministry to them not just to embrace them. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 1, about the one that's been disfellowshipped and put out, embrace. When he's repentant, embrace, let Satan get an advantage. We're not ignorant of his devices. So not only do we embrace and reaffirm, but really do some serious ministry or get them serious counseling to get them healed of the wounds on the inside to restore their spiritual self-esteem. Very, very important. So there's the outward embrace, we're so glad to have you back. We love you. And then the, the prayerful ministry as needed to restore their, their soul to a place of confidence in God and trust in other people. I, I've been betrayed a few times over the years by people close to me. And I remember after it happened to me once, I said to myself, you know, I, I could lead ministry and put walls up around me so that no one can ever hurt me again. And I said, if I did, it would be a business and no longer a ministry. So I determined if I'm going to get hurt, if I'm going to get stabbed, it's going to be in the back because I'm going to trust people. Now, we really seek to use wisdom. I, I listened to Nancy very carefully because she's got more discernment in terms of seeing a red flag than any, anyone I know. I've got other very solid leaders with me that have my back. I've got solid intercessors. I try to keep my heart open before the Lord. Uh, in terms of warnings and things like that, but I determined I'm going to trust. In other words, I, I'm not going to be less of a human being or less Christ-like because I've been hurt. Ra rather, I want to be wise and learn from the experience, but I'm, I'm still going to trust. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to restore is, is a trust in leaders. And maybe this one's going to fail me or this one's out to use me or something. No, I, I'd rather get hurt and disappointed while still trusting rather than have trust taken away. Um, at what point do we stop trying to restore everyone who's been hurt when we see it affect our own health? What's like anything in ministry? You can only minister out of the grace that you have. It's like if you are a, a medical doctor and people need your services 24 seven, at a certain point, you're gonna collapse. At a certain point, you're not gonna be able to serve people. And therefore, what you need to do if you want to save people's lives is get a good night's sleep. What you need to do if you're going to save people's lives is say no, 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 no. Luke 5.15 tells us that great crowds came to, to, to Jesus to hear him 
and to be healed of their diseases. All that, until he goes to the cross, that's why he's there to teach and to heal. But Luke 5, 16 says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So despite the crowds coming, he went to be with his father. You can even say because of the crowds, he went to be with his father because to have what the crowds needed and to have the strategy of God, where to go, what to do, that he, he had to be with his father. And Luke 5, 17 says the power of the Lord was present to heal in his next ministry outing. That's what happened as he was alone with his father. So you have to realize these are not your people. They're God's people. These are not your sheep. They're God's sheep. And you can't be there for everyone. Uh, many years ago, oh, I'm thinking the early 2000s and in, in the first years of a fire of our school and, and church and missions organization, that I, I really kind of prided myself that anytime I ever got an email or a text from any grad anywhere in the world, at any time of the day or night, I responded. I just had such love for the grads and such a sense of solidarity that I wanted to be there. Obviously, if I was asleep, I didn't know they contacted me. But otherwise, whatever I was doing, I found a way to respond. And I was talking to an old friend of the family, and she said to me, Mike, only God is there for everybody all the time. It's like, okay, thank you. Thank you for the reminder that it's not up to you to save everybody. It's not up to you to restore everybody. It's, it's not up to you to help everybody. Ultimately, you're dishonoring the Lord because you're neglecting intimacy with him, probably neglecting your family, and, and, and you're hurting your own soul, and there, now you can't help anybody. So you have to pray and give the burden to the Lord and then find out how to minister. And if it's, the numbers are overwhelming, then ask the Lord for a strategy or a network or a way to minister to more. But you're not the Savior. I'm not the Savior. There's only one Savior. Uh, does the Bible give us any right or understanding of defending ourselves, correcting these lies, and standing up for ourselves? We, we first want to respond to curses with blessing. And we don't want to respond in kind. If someone insults us, we want to respond with grace. Our goal is to win them and to honor the Lord. And, and even if it is right for us to set the record straight, we're not doing it for ourselves, but for the sake of others. In other words, if, if I'm lied about day and night, which again is, happens with my calling, that's, that's reality. So my personal reputation, that's not an issue. God knows who I am. That's what matters. And he knows how to get the message out. However, what if you heard all kinds of lies about me because of which you didn't show up for the, the, the group meeting tonight? And you, you missed out on what I had to offer you. Well, maybe out of a desire to help you, that it, it's worth it for me to say, hey, you may have heard X, Y, Z. Here's the truth. Go to this website. You'll get the truth. So it's not about me. It's not about my reputation. It's about my ability to serve others. And it's about the honor of the Lord. Sometimes people are genuinely confused. And therefore, we take time to respond. So if you feel personally hurt, and personally, you need to restore your reputation. Personally, you need to push back. I would pray that through first to get over the personal part of it. I'll, I'll give you an example. Oh, when was this? In the early 1990s, there was a well-known TV preacher who wrote a book about holiness. And 
uh, one of my friends, a grad from an earlier school, had given him a number of my books. And my friend told me, he's preaching out of your books. He's actually holding the book up from the pulpit and saying, man, I didn't know anybody else was as hungry for God as I am. And, and he's, he's, pre he's reading pages out of your books. Well, the book comes out and a pastor calls me, a woman, and she says, Dr. Brown, I want you to know that, that this pastor has basically plagiarized you. said, I, I, I read his book, and it's got quote after quote from you and pages for you, and it, it doesn't mention your name at all. It's plagiarism. So I get the book, and I was, I was shocked, shocked to see it. Page after page, whole lines of it, little uh, plays on words and different things. There are stories I told, and I got some of the information in the wrong order, and, you know, but it was, and anyway, uh, I, I was really bothered. And I told Nancy that I was really bothered. And she said, are you bothered because you said it and he's getting the credit for it? Isn't it really the Lord? If the Lord gave you a good thing, isn't it the Lord's? So I had to pray it through. That's, that's my wife. That's the way she responded. So I prayed it through. And, and I said, okay, I, I think I got over that. You know, because he was much better known than that, that I was, et cetera. And now he's selling books with my quotes and they're all thinking he said it. I got over it. She said, oh, it's definitely wrong. You should tell your publisher. But her first thing was, is there flesh in you that needs to die? So if I feel personally upset, my reputation, all right, okay, let me kill that. Let me crucify that before the Lord, especially if it's for the gospel. But if it's helpful for people to know the truth, if it's helpful for them to know this person is lying or misrepresenting, then by all means, there can be a right platform. So it's not personal vengeance, anger, I'm going to prove myself right or hurt them. It's a matter of being constructive for the good of the body and in order to help others. Uh, the story of David and Saul is always applied to these kind of situations, but is it always applicable to touch not the Lord's anointed? Don't let anybody throw touch not the Lord's anointed on you. Don't let anybody throw that on you. It's Psalm 105.15. It's talking about when Abraham and the patriarchs were, were wandering and God said, touch my, not my anointed, do my prophets no harm. That God protected the patriarchs and those leaders. It is it's not a model for New Testament leadership to say, I'm the anointed, you don't touch me. Because Paul said, we're, we're the lowest of the low. We're the servant of all. Jesus said, you don't, you don't rule the way the Gentile authorities do. No, you, you, you get low. You serve. He said, even he, the son of man, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for all. So anybody that throws, don't touch the Lord's anointed, uh, to me, they're doing it out of insecurity or they're doing it out of ignorance. But either way, I, I step back from that. If that's the way someone, uh, if, I, I don't have any colleagues who even think like that. But if they did, I, I would lovingly speak to them. I pray for them. I might rebuke them for, for being manipulative. and and. I tell them, hey, you need to seriously question. This is a valid issue someone's raising to you. Don't be so insecure. And if someone throws that on you, it's just, it's just not someone that long-term you're going to do good and effective ministry with. Um, <clears throat> after enduring such abuse and hurt, are we to stay silent to the people that we know who are under their leadership or expose it for them for their sake? If it's cult-like, if it's really destructive, uh, you might need to expose it. But even then, you'd follow a biblical platform that you would go to the person privately and appeal to them if they're an elder. Uh, if they don't hear, that you would take two or three others. If they still don't hear, 
and, and you might not be able to, it might be a position where the person's seniority is such that you can't get near them, then, then I would go to uh, other leaders that are trusted and say, hey, I'm coming to you privately, but I've got these grave concerns. Maybe they could go and confront this other person. But if it's genuinely dangerous to the people in there, like, like a Jonestown kind of thing, not that extreme, but that people are going to lose their lives over this. Or, or, or you know people that are breaking down spiritually, mentally, emotionally because of this, then you need wisdom from God as to the right way to expose it. And to the extent that someone else could do it rather than you, if you've been hurt, all the better. Because otherwise, it could just seem vindictive. Okay, so you posted this on Facebook now, so you're the new victim and things. Better if some other leaders can expose it. But there are times, yes, when it needs to be exposed. Otherwise, you, you pray secretly and people will start coming to you. And when they come, you can say, yeah, listen, this is a dangerous situation. I really recommend you, you get out from there. Um, what about the power and presence of God still moving in the midst of such abuse? So one of my grads from the school in Long Island in the 80s came to me very, very upset. He was part of a charismatic Lutheran church. And his pastor had been accused of, of living in adultery. And it was a Wednesday night. The church board met with him accused him of committing adultery. He yelled at them, how dare you say, how dare you charge me with this? Lied through his teeth, tried to make them feel guilty, right? Lied through his teeth and walked out from there to the Wednesday night service and preached such a powerful message that this grad was on his knees at the altar, joined by the whole church, basically weeping before the Lord. When he found out that the pastor had actually been in adultery at that moment and that he had just lied to his board. He was really upset with himself. He said, why didn't I have the discernment? Why, did, why didn't I recognize that? Well, number one, you're walking in love towards people. I'm, I'm not, you know, when I see Eric, I haven't seen him in a while. I'm just sitting here like, mm, what am I discerning? Mm, what is, what's it like? We're not doing that. We trust people. We love people. That's our default mentality. And secondly, the guy was still anointed. And thirdly, he was very talented. And that's what happened. Uh, Samson, Judges 16, check that out. There he sleeps with a Philistine prostitute, supposed to be the leader of Israel. He shouldn't be with a prostitute, number one. Absolutely not with a Philistine prostitute. That's the enemy. It's pagan. So in the middle of the night, he gets up and the people are ready to, you know, to, to attack him. And he, he carries the, the gates of the city on his shoulders. He, he wakes up from sleeping with a, with a prostitute of the enemy and gets up and the anointing is still on. That's the scary thing. And that is what makes you think, don't touch the, don't question the man of God. Remember, that's God's power, not that person's power. That's God's anointing, not that person's anointing. And if they are corrupt, they're corrupt. If they're lying, they're lying. If they're in adultery, they're in adultery. If they're stealing money, they're stealing money. And all the more, all the more, do you fear for their well-being if that's the case? Uh, from the leadership side, what's Jezebel leadership? It doesn't have to come through a woman. It can come through a woman, but it's, it's, a, it's a demonic work through someone that basically emasculates leadership. Uh, it takes away your sense of authority. It undercuts you. It can be seductive and manipulative in its own way. My book, Jezebel's War with America, gets into it in great depth, not so much 
just within a local church setting, but in terms of Jezebelic um, activity in general. But what, what happens is your, your spiritual authority is taken away. You, you, you've, the boldness, the faith, the strength, it's, it's taken away. And you might feel sexually seduced or seduced in some other way. And then with that, just the general weakening of, of your spirit. Um, how to navigate between managing stewardship of the ministry and yet not suffocating people with control. It, it's really, it's not that much to navigate, honestly, that you give people liberty to do what God's calling them to do, but you have wisdom in terms of parameters. You have wisdom in terms of, of here, just think of like a coach with a, with a team. Okay, you're putting a winning team out there, and one guy, every time he goes out, you know, he's messing up and hurting the team. So you pull him, and now you try, hey, let, let's, you can do better. Let's work with you to get better. You're not being controlling. It's just you're, you're being a wise leader. You know, you, 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 you put someone over the nursery, and things get really messed up, and the kids are not being cared for, and parents are complaining. It's like, okay, let me just step in here. Maybe you need more help, more guidance, or maybe you're not in the right place. So you're, you're just, you're overseeing with wisdom. And if, if, if it's pointed out to you that you're so controlling that people don't have room to breathe, then you really need to step back and, and ask yourself, okay, is, is it true? And, and get some of the leadership wisdom into you because you want people to flourish and feel free, but then you need to be able to say, hey, uh, that needs some improvement there. So they know you're trusting them but you're trusting them with to the degree of their maturity and everything else. And then how to treat someone who wants to leave. Well, first they're not yours, right? They don't belong to you. Uh, and in the, in the past, sometimes when someone was really vital to our work, it was hard for me to hear them saying that God was calling them out. I, I think that's changed much over the years. You know, I wanted to persuade them to stay or, or why it was really the Lord that they stayed. And it, it may have taken me a little while to recognize, hey, you let them go. If I know that someone's going to join some destructive ministry or you know, they're going to destroy their soul, I'll, I'll warn them and say, hey, you don't have to stay with me, but just stay away from that group. They're dangerous. Uh, or I know this person, they're a shark and they're going to try to hurt you and take advantage of you. Uh, but, but otherwise, bless them. Uh, I, re I remember in our ministry school that one um, one young man came to see us and he said, listen, you know, he was in our school and he said, uh, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm called to uh, I'm, I'm called to this particular country to do work, planning congregations there, et cetera. And he said, wonderful. Great. And he said, the only thing is, in order to, to be sent out by this organization, I have to go through their school. So I'm going to be leaving this school and and going to that school and he knew that we had vision for his future and things like that i said to him well we're not here to keep you but to lose you that's the whole reason we're here is to lose you to go out and do what god's called you to do i would tell pastors in the brownsville days they would come to me and say hey, i'm sending you one of, your, one of our top people to your school i said don't send them unless you're willing to lose them because you don't know once they come here where god's going to send them or what the future holds so bless send uh, you can almost never go wrong doing that if you know the person's doing something really dangerous, and it's one thing to warn them. But otherwise, hey, you go do whatever God's put in your heart. And if it's not the Lord, they'll be back and say, hey, I should have stayed. 
But otherwise, you you bless and honor, give, and it will be given you. 